The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In a relationship, you, you, you can only get what you ask for, and that's something that maybe it's taken me a very long time to understand, but you do need to ask, I think, in order to get certain things. You need to be able to articulate that need. This week on the podcast, I have Katie Kitamura to talk about her novel, Intimacies, about an interpreter who has come to The Hague to escape New York after the death of her father and work at the International Court. Katie and I talk about the charismatic nature of power, the challenges of interpreting for war criminals, and what it's like being married to a fellow writer. We also talk about teaching during a pandemic and noticing that your students are laughing at YouTube videos instead of you. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgewood, and this is Lit Up. With my eyes of darting, it's because I've got my notes in front of me, so I'm not checking emails or anything. I'm <laughs> trying to find your quotes. Um, I had it when, well, when I was when I was teaching, especially the undergraduates. You know, they'd be staring at the screen, and I would see them in their tiles. And then they suddenly start laughing silently to themselves. And I knew they were watching like a YouTube video or something. This whole remote experience must have been fascinating for you as a teacher too. Anyway, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll stop no, chit-chatting. No, <laughs> great. No, it's so much better. There's always that formal pause where I'm like, well, now okay, we're going to start. But then <laughs> we'll get back to the chatting. It's my great pleasure to have Katie Kitamura on Lit Up, finally, to talk about her most recent novel, Intimacies. Katie, thank you so much for being here. Angela, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Katie, how are you today? I'm, I'm doing really well. I, I've just come from a little spate of travel. I was in Paris and then I was in Tennessee for the Sewanee Writers' Conference. And after a year and a half of being very much on my own with my family in our in our home to be out in the world and encountering people has been both startling and very wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that, that you've been able to travel. I have been stalking you a little on Instagram and I saw that you had, I'm thinking this dream come true for a writer and that is to give a reading at Shakespeare and Company in Paris. What was that like? 
Uh, I mean, tell it, us. It really was. It was a dream. It was the first in-person event they've done in about a year and a half, and they did it indoors in the shop. And it feels incredibly special to be reading in this kind of magical environment. It's really a shop where the the owners, Sylvia and David, are friends, and the people who work at the bookshop feel like friends. I was paired with a French Bosnian writer called Yakuta Likavasovic. And it was just a complete delight to encounter her and her work and to hear her speak. And so the entire thing was, as you say, it was really a dream. It felt like one of those bucket list aspirations that you have as a writer. Absolutely. Well, your book is international um, in its scope as well. What was the impulse to write this novel? And can you explain in your own words what you think it is about now maybe versus what you thought it might be about when you started? Oh, I, I love that question because I really it's really true for me. When I write the novel, I think it's one thing. And when I finish writing the novel, I think it's another thing. And then when I step back from it, I realize it's something else completely. You know, the impetus for the novel really came from a very particular experience when I heard Charles Taylor, the former president of Liberia, speaking on the radio in his own defense at his own trial in The Hague and the experience of hearing him speak. He's a remarkably gifted orator. He's a very, very persuasive speaker. Objectively knowing that this man had committed terrible crimes against humanity, while listening to him make his case and finding his speech oddly compelling, put me into such a state of moral unease, and I knew that was something that I wanted to explore in the novel. So the novel is about an interpreter who moves to The Hague to take a job working at a war crimes tribunal that is very loosely modeled on the International Criminal Court. Um, and it is about her kind of assessment of the world around her and her shifting sense of what her own place in that world might be. From the very beginning, I knew that I wanted it to be a novel that would think about questions of complicity and implication and how we're drawn into the institutions that we work for and the societies that we're part of and the language that. When I finished writing it, I realized that it is those things, but I think it's also a quite personal story about a person who is looking for a place to call home in a very, very simple way. You know, she's just looking for a place where she can rest for a little bit. So that became as a kind of secondary layer, as I worked on revisions, quite a critical part of the story. Now, I know that language obviously plays such a role in an interpreter's life, but I was wondering, firstly, how many languages you speak and when you started to add languages to your repertoire. I grew up speaking Japanese and English within my household and when I was probably about five, I would say Japanese felt very much like my mother tongue and English was the acquired language. I grew up in California, but my parents were both immigrants to this country relatively at that time recently arrived. They'd probably only been in the United States for about five years when I was born. Over the years, I have really lost a lot of my Japanese. And so when I'm back in Japan, it takes me a little bit of time to adjust and to kind of pick up bits and pieces of it. I write so much about people who are 
bilingual or multilingual and some of that I think is really, I'm embarrassed to say, completely aspirational. It's like I'm trying to get back to the state, you know, when moving fluidly between languages felt very native to me, it felt very, very natural to me. And now there's much more of an effort. I still do have that moment when I'll come upon a phrase that feels best expressed in Japanese rather than English. And I had it very, very strongly when my children were born. I think because so many of my most intimate childhood memories, the language that they took place in was Japanese. Some of the interest is, is purely aspirational or purely nostalgic. It's really reaching for something that I no longer completely have. Speaking of language and interpretation, there's a line in your book that I loved, and it is, it's an interpreter's job to throw down the planks across the gaps of language. And it almost sounds like that's part of your reaching too, to kind of lay planks between your ideas. I'm wondering, this protagonist of yours, why don't you give us a name for her? It's funny, sometimes people ask me, do you know what her name is? Does she have a name? In your head and I really do not have a name for her at all and I don't have a name for the narrator in my previous novel A Separation who also does not have a name. I think one of the reasons I'm really drawn to these unnamed narrators is because these are characters, they're women who are really kind of slipping between certain social structures. So in the case of A Separation this is a woman who's no longer really with her husband, but is not exactly divorced from her husband. She's not really either thing. She's not exactly a wife or an ex-wife. She's something in between. And in the case of intimacies, this is really a woman who is speaking from the margins. She's kind of speaking from the side and she's looking at the action which seems to her to be taking place in front of her, but of which she's not really a part. And I think part of having them unnamed is just the fact that they're not firmly part of an overarching social structure. You know, the narrator in Intimacies is new to the town. She's newly arrived in The Hague. She doesn't really know anybody. She's trying to find a place for herself. So I think that's part of the reason why they're unnamed. I think it's also because, this sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but I think as a writer, I'm always trying to find different ways of establishing the intimacy that you can create with a reader, between the reader and the writer. And I think I know as a writer there are some fairly easy ways to do that. For example, giving a concrete backstory or kind of inciting event or something that happened in the past that explains a character's behavior in the present. I think that's a very kind of almost mechanical way of creating sympathy in the reader for the central character. I really try to see if there's like a different way of creating that closeness. Um, and so I think part of not giving that, them a name is, is kind of resisting the kind of obvious ways of creating a point of identification for the reader. Well, I also felt that we arrive with her in The Hague and she is an alien in this city in a sense and the way she walks around it and feels like she is, well, she's grieving. So there's that layer on, on top of it. But um, there's an alienation from her sense of place as well. And I think whether she has a name or not, I definitely felt close to her because we were experiencing the city in the same way she might be. Yeah, I mean, I always feel when I read a book, the way I feel closest to the protagonist is really by seeing the world through their eyes. Um, not necessarily by knowing the concrete facts 
about them, but by seeing the way they respond to the world and to things that are taking place around them, to kind of getting a sense of how their mind moves. And that's always what I'm hoping to try to get on the page is the kind of movement of a mind as it tries to grapple with things that are happening around them. Well, with that in mind, thinking of being in her perspective, can you describe what the court looks like? And as an interpreter, where she sits and just how that whole structure works, because it was really interesting to read about, you know, they're separated, the relationship between the interpreter and the accused, for example. Yeah, so the court in the novel is based or draws from the International Criminal Court, although I'm always careful to say that it's not intended to represent that particular court and its activities, but it is very closely based on the ICC. And the ICC is, one of the interesting things about it is as an institution, it looms so large in the public imagination that it feels like a very old institution, but in fact is relatively recent. I think it was founded only maybe 15 years ago or so. And it is in this beautiful uh, building that is all glass and transparency. It's a very, very modern building. And I think part of that is it's meant to reflect the ethos of the court, which is to be transparent, to be accessible. And it really is a very accessible institution. So I did a fair amount of research there and I was able to just go in and sit in on a trial. In my case, I sat in on the trial of Laurent Bagbo from Ivory Coast. All of the transcripts from the trials are available online. Anybody can download them. It was very, very easy to get access to the personnel. So there is this wonderful kind of transparency, which is, I think, very important to the institution of the court, but is also extremely useful to a novelist when they're trying to do their research. Um, so the courtrooms themselves, most of the action of the court, you know, with the, the lawyers and the various personnel is, is all on kind of one level. And then the interpreters are in on a mezzanine level, almost one fully one floor above. They're looking down from these kind of booths, these glass-fronted booths, and they happen to be adjacent to the public gallery. So when I was sitting in the public gallery watching one of these trials, I was actually almost, my point of view was not dissimilar to what the interpreters themselves were seeing. That same sense of watching something that was almost taking place on a on a stage set at one remove, um, you know, listening to things through headphones. So that was that was very useful for me. But one of the things that I quickly realized when I interviewed some of these interpreters is that the work was physically taxing and technically very difficult and psychologically difficult. But one of the things that was maybe most troubling is the way the work places you in an uncomfortable intimacy with people who have been accused of, of war crimes and crimes against humanity. And so the story that really stayed with me was an interpreter who told me that he had been working with somebody who had been accused of crimes against humanity and was interpreting for them and developed a kind of rapport with that person. And when they were found innocent, although he personally believed from having seen the evidence presented in court that he was guilty, he felt this tremendous sense of relief that he would be let go and that he would be able to kind of go home as a free person. And he said that was so deeply troubling to him and he felt like he'd really lost his anchor through the work. He no longer had a kind of ethical center. He no longer felt that he was able to really, to say what was the correct moral attitude to have towards this person. And that really stayed with me. And that's one of the things that I think 
the book is thinking about is whether or not empathy is always a desirable thing. You know, we're really taught to want to be empathetic, that empathy is a good thing. You know, I have children and we're constantly telling them to be empathetic. But I think one of the things I realized from talking to these interpreters is that, that there's a danger and a kind of moral gray area in empathy itself. In this case, your narrator, just like the man you have just explained, becomes the interpreter for a former president who's convicted of war crimes. And it's fascinating that you describe that their intimacy is the strongest relationship she has within this whole system. With the former president in these kind of private conferences, she's physically close to him. She is providing a service for him alone. She's interpreting the, the I think it's from English to French in the scene. She's interpreting what is happening in the meeting for him. And there is a, a real physical proximity. So that is not actually happening during the official trial, but is something that's happening during the preparations for the trial. And, and that kind of interpretive work, I was surprised. I found that the interpreters were doing, that was the kind of work that they were doing alongside the work they were doing while the court was in session. To me, it's just so hard to be neutral in a situation like that. But I think, you know, one of the points that comes across in the book is this idea of being so close to power and yet having none. And for our character, that feels like that's something that weighs on her too. And she's also relatively uh, powerless in her own life in, in this moment for many reasons. Was there a parallel there that you were trying to play with? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I was, I think I'm always interested in characters who, who are a little bit passive, who don't take the obvious steps towards action. And I'm always interested in characters who kind of have a little bit of resistance in them, a kind of a little bit of stubbornness that can't really easily be explained. Um, but it's absolutely true that I was interested in a character who would be adjacent to the seat of power and who would maybe think of herself as being very distant from it and think of herself as not actually having access to power, but who over the course of the novel would come to realize that even if you don't even if you're not in the seat of power, you still are part of the institution itself and you're implicated in its activities. And that was definitely something that I wanted to think about and I wanted to figure out if that was something that might liberate her to kind of break out of that passivity and, and kind of take a step towards some kind of action. And similarly in her private life, in her personal life, she feels herself to be powerless, but in fact, I think she is in a position of relative power. I think her powerlessness really comes from the fact that she doesn't have access to the entire story. She doesn't really know what the story is with her boyfriend. She doesn't actually know what is really happening with his ex-wife or his estranged wife. He, she doesn't actually know. She's trying to decipher the fragments, the little pieces, the shards of the narrative that she's been given. And she's trying to kind of piece them together into a single narrative and kind of go from there. And that is definitely parallel to how she accesses information in her work at the court. She also, in her work, only has tiny fragments, little pieces of a much larger narrative. In one case, that narrative is a kind of history-making narrative of great significance. 
in the other case it's just a question of are you going to be in this relationship or not but I think one of the things that I was really thinking about is the fact that as people in the world as we kind of move through the world it's very hard to maintain what you might think is the correct perspective it's very hard not to feel that matters of international consequence at work are the many thousand times more important that they are than the question of an unreturned text. You know, I think it's, it's very hard to maintain that perspective. And that's just part of being being a human person. I definitely want to dive in to her relationship with Adrian because I think so many women will read this book and feel like they have been in a somewhat similar, obviously, if not the same dynamic exactly, but just waiting for a text from a man and the days going on and on and on and feeling like you thought you were in one kind of relationship only for it to end up being a very different one. She's in a moment in her life where that's okay for her or she's willing to live with that ambiguity I I don't know if it is okay for her. <laughs> do you mean at the end of the book or do you mean in, no, in general? I, in of, the... I feel, because obviously it's not okay and she's struggling with it. It's interesting because I, I'm always, I think one of the, the premises for me in, in getting access to this first person narrative voice is the idea that it would be always looking at things from as many different angles as possible. So she's constantly assessing and then reassessing and reassessing and and kind of saying, you know, you could look at it as A, but it could also be B. And I knew that I wanted that to be the case a little bit with the central relationship as well. On the one hand, you could look at it as he's invited her to move into his apartment and then he has effectively ghosted her and stranded her in this apartment that's very much haunted by the ghost of his marriage and in particular the ghost of his estranged wife, Gabby. That's one version of events. I think the other version of events is he's in the very early stages of a relationship. He has a complicated situation with his former wife and children, and he just needs to take a step back for a couple of weeks and figure out what's happening with his personal life before he moves on. I think those are two kind of, two points of view that feel mutually exclusive, but are actually happening at the same time. And that's also something that there's a, a scene in the book where the narrator looks at a painting and it's of a man and a woman. And she kind of thinks the two points of view, what the woman is experiencing and what the man is experiencing are coming from diametrically opposed positions and they're almost irreconcilable. So I kind of use that as a premise for thinking about the relationship itself. I think it feels so unbearable because of the claustrophobia of being in her head as she is waiting for for this thing that she knows is superficial and absurd and petty and she feels embarrassed to be waiting and so desperate to get a text message but at the same time she can't help herself and I I suppose some part of me did think who among us has not been in that situation definitely I think particularly at the beginning of a relationship before you know someone well those two versions of events live side by side. Those two, those two versions of a person, could their behavior mean this or this, depending on how you're feeling about the relationship, whether you're feeling confident and relaxed, you know, you're like, oh, it's just that. 
But when you're feeling anxious and worried, it's this other version. And I almost think it's the practice of getting to know someone that they reveal almost like the choose your own adventure part of the, you know, how this thing is going to develop, isn't it? I mean, I think one of the things about the situation that she's put into is while on the one hand, perhaps her boyfriend has put her in that situation, the obsession itself is of her own making. And she does allow herself to create these narratives and to spiral out into these various hypotheses of things that might or might not be taking place. And it is really very much in her head and it is very much a dialogue with herself rather than with an actual person. Um, In any relationship, it's the two of you that are creating the dynamic. So if you are in an uncomfortable or an unhappy situation, she does have the power to leave, but she doesn't. Um, And I think sometimes we can forget that, that we can step away far earlier and that we do have power. She's a character who is not comfortable taking up space. She's not comfortable occupying an apartment, occupying a room. She's often very quiet. She's somebody who throughout the novel, her job is to speak the words of other people. Other people's words are literally put into her mouth. And part of the kind of journey or the, or the movement that the character has to go through over the course of the novel is, is, is learning to actually speak for herself. And so the end of the novel really closes on her own words where she's finally speaking for herself, where she's been able to make an active decision rather than kind of falling into this passivity. And I think the question of, you know, you lose a great deal by being so passive, but also what do you what do you gain? You know, what what is she withholding? How is she protecting herself by being in this way? Those were some of the kind of character questions that I was thinking about when I was writing her. This part of the book I just found so relatable, especially as you know, thinking back on my own past or relationships and wondering why I'd acted a certain way. And obviously kind of like the journey of your character in the book, I feel like as we have experiences and become more sure of who we are, we become far stronger in our ability to leave a situation that doesn't feel good anymore. And so this is one of the one of your amazing parts that I loved. And it says, I had made myself too easy to leave, stashed away like backup. I had asked for too little and now it was too late. And I think that sometimes, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but it's almost like the ex-girlfriend or the the wife, you know, the person, the woman before always seems in my mind to be so strong and outspoken and you know, does whatever they want and they kind of leave the man in their wake, you know, bereft. And then you come in and I mean, or I'm like, say you, then I'm like, then the me comes in and is kind of like, whatever you need. Oh, you're still, you know, so precious because this, this strong woman, you know, which is exactly the type of woman I'd like to be, you know, wielding her powers, doing yeah. what she wants. She's left him and, you know, in a wake. Um, I just think that Gabby versus our narrator, this idea of these two women, yeah. one that is very much done what she wants. I mean, I, I think when I wrote Gabby, I, 
I wanted her to be a character who had a gift for decisive action. Someone who has a gift for kind of living a dramatic life. And that's very much not who the narrator is. Um, and I think that question of, you know, there it, there is to some extent, I think, in a relationship, you, you, you can only get what you ask for. And that's something that maybe it's taken me a very long time to understand, but you do need to ask, I think, in order to get certain things. You need to be able to articulate that need. Um, and I don't know, I actually don't know if the narrator ever really fully does learn that, but I hope by the end of the book that's something that she she might be able to to do. I mean, it's interesting because one of the things about writing a character who's in her, you know, I, I will put her probably in her late 30s or so, there's... I've been very interested to see that in a lot of the write-ups, she's almost by default described as a young woman. Um, but to me, she's really not. She's a woman who's in the middle of her life. She's a woman who has certain habits that are maybe hard to break. She's also a person who is relatively realistic about her life. And so I think, you know, at the end of the book, she makes a choice to move forward with this relationship with all its imperfections and even perhaps with that brief history of unkindness that this person has shown toward her. And I don't think she's doing that from a position of being manipulated or, or gaslit or controlled. I think she's making a very conscious decision that people are different people in different circumstances. And it's a kind of quite, I don't want to say, you know, middle-aged romance isn't exactly a way to sell anything, but it's a kind of mature decision to move ahead, understanding that there is no perfect narrative of what took place between them. And I think certainly when I was younger, I thought there was a kind of, you know, very straight road that created the perfect romance. And then as you get older, you understand that that narrative doesn't really exist in real life. And that narrative is complicated and contradictory and compromised. But nonetheless, if it provides a foundation of, of mutual trust and I guess, appreciation and kindness, then often that can be enough. Oh, definitely. I think that's the process of maturity, isn't it? And deciding that, not that there are trade-offs, because I hate that phrase, but um, yeah, just that there's so much complexity to other human beings and do we allow them their own, their pasts and how do we allow them their privacy to that yes. past? Um, I think so often we want to know everything about someone and I've really, it keeps coming up in with these conversations actually about how it's far, if you trust someone, it's kind of a far more peaceful choice to let them have their past and, you know, or even to spend time with people from their past too and just let go jealousy or fretfulness. I mean, one of the things I think when we talk about relationships is that we can make an assumption that full disclosure and full transparency is the most desirable way of being. You know, this idea that you know everything about your partner and their past and there are no secrets between you. But I tend to think that actually a little bit of privacy in a relationship is a very healthy and necessary thing, whatever form that might take. And at one point towards the end of the novel, the character kind of says, we may never actually know what happened 
for each of us in these past few months and it might be like a little blind spot that you negotiate around but it's 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 still okay and there's still a way of moving forward and i think you're absolutely right i mean i think you know my own relationships i like my privacy and i like to be able to give somebody their own privacy the opportunity to kind of be by themselves to be themselves for themselves rather than being themselves for me or for the world i think is really important for for mental health for existing to exist just for yourself even within a little pocket of your life um is is really crucial for stability actually and the ability to function in a relationship with another person my husband is a novelist and i always have this funny experience when we and i think he has it as well when we share our drafts with each other so these this is something that each of us will have been spending much of the day working on for several years and then we share it and we always have this experience of oh is that what you've been actually thinking about for the past 3 years and it's a really startling experience and it's a wonderful experience because it means that in that period when i read his draft when i read the novel that he's been working on for you know however many years i suddenly have an opportunity to see him in a completely different context i think so much of the time the negotiations that are taking place between us really have to do with things like you know did you pick up the kids from school did you empty the dishwasher did you make dinner did you clear the plates all these kind of quite mundane practical things and then to suddenly have an appreciation for somebody's for really something that is very private to him which is his work and the process of making that work and the process of putting things on the page watching them play exploring them is really feels like a privilege and it's come to feel like it's quite a big part of our relationship actually is is that moment of 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 knowing that you can work on something and and have your own private sphere and then also knowing that there's a moment when you make the disclosure and you say this is Darling, this is what I've been working on for these past few years. That must be an absolutely incredible experience. And I'm wondering though if if when you read his work because obviously books have relationships in them. You know, yours has a romantic relationship whether when you read the relation, you know, the relationship that he's writing about if it ever pings in a way or you just go, "Ooh, what's that about or that must be something that you have to kind of digest and let wash over you and then let go with that it's... sense of generosity <laughs> to your marriage well you I'm know a Scorpio so I'm coming at it from this very jealous place well you know i mean he always makes a joke when he read the draft for a separation he said all those years you were upstairs writing a novel about an errant writer husband who gets murdered <laughs> So um no I mean I I think it's one thing that we both know is that as much as a novel is really a reflection of the writer and it there is such it is an act of exposure and you are showing yourself and you are sharing yourself in writing it's not really exactly the one to one that people sometimes think it is so it's very rare that there's a character in a novel of mine or a character in a novel of his that is exactly his or my self and experience and way of seeing the world so you know i i can see him in his books but it's much more in things like structure or ways of telling a story or preoccupation rather than the precise 
actions of a character and I think it's very similar for me but at the same time there are things I think inevitably that we borrow from real life you know little tidbits that are just too good to let go that you just have to kind of drop in and so it's always kind of fun to see to see those moments turn up in a piece of fiction I think ultimately we know fiction is fiction and there is real life and the kind of texture in real life can absorb whatever comes out in the fiction it's also just a really layers of a relationship like yours when you have your life, your children, you know, kind of, but then sharing that psychological realm with one another. It's a beautiful depth to the foundation of a relationship. I mean, it, it's, there's so much that about having a partner who's in who understands what you're doing every day when you go up to your desk to work that I I don't really know how I would do it otherwise. I mean, I think everything from grappling with producing a draft, grappling with editing, you know, having his response. He, he's the reader that I trust most above all. He's my first reader. He's my best reader. He knows what I'm trying to do in my fiction and he also, I think, understands what I'm best at doing in my fiction so he's not offering solutions that are impossible for me to execute sometimes you know somebody says gives you a note and says why don't you try this and you say well I would if I was a different kind of writer but I'm not that kind of writer at least not right now so you know I really do feel incredibly lucky in that sense I don't know if it's helpful but it, it's definitely a factor is that we're very very different kinds of writers everything about the books that come out at the end everything about our process and our interests, they're very, very distinct. And I don't think there's actually been that much cross-pollination between us over the years. We keep stubbornly plowing our own furrow, so to speak. But, you know, he writes, Hari writes, he's very technically dexterous, um, maximalist, expansive worlds that are very research-heavy. They're really systems novels. And I write these very small... <laughs> you know, you know, single world, single strand narrative kind of book. So they're kind of functioning in opposition to each other. But to some extent, I think that does allow us to give each other notes in quite a clear way because it's so divorced from what we're, we're doing in our own work. Oh, such a, I just, I didn't expect our conversation to go there, which is why it's so wonderful <laughs> to have these conversations. But it's just such a beautiful thing just to know that that's how you do write. Um, so Katie, the question I ask everyone at the end of the interview is, what lights you up? Ooh. I mean, I have, I have, I apologize. I have such a, a trite, over-familiar answer, but it is really my family and my children. It's, it's really been one of the strange things about living through the last four or five years is it's been a period of such intense personal happiness for me. It's really been the happiest I think I've been in my life at a time when things around us have been almost the opposite. And it's been a period of real darkness. I've had moments of just such intense happiness where, I, you know, I want to really, I find myself wanting to slow time down and kind of live inside this moment for us long as I possibly can. I mean, I, I will say, you know, in a, 
in a book or in a film, sometimes I encounter a piece of work that feels so much like I'm meeting a new mind, even without meeting the person. I just feel such a rush of, I can feel my myself kind of crawling out of my body to try to meet the the mind or the imagination that I'm encountering on the screen or in a book or, and, or in a piece of art. And that is always such a special moment to me because it, it reminds me of how important it is to remain open and to kind of be open to really being permeable to experiences and to other people. So I don't know if that really, That's really answers so your question. <laughs> I'm wondering, do you remember a book or a piece of art that's given you that feeling recently? Well, you know, very recently I watched the Steve McQueen film Lover's Rock, which has a long segment. I think it's about 10 or 15 minutes and it's just a group of people on the dance floor dancing and it is such a purely ecstatic film experience and I really felt very I felt overwhelmed by it it was so beautiful it was so engrossing I felt so much that I was inside the perspective and imagination of a really brilliant filmmaker and you know I was watching that on our television screen because this was the age of streaming it was a pandemic we couldn't go to the cinema and I just thought if I saw this in a in a theater with a big screen and, and, and proper sound, it would be completely, it would be a genuinely ecstatic experience. Um, so that, that, that is, is one example that I can think of very recently. Oh, that's perfect. I think I know what everyone's going to be streaming <laughs> and downloading. Thank you so much for chatting with me. What a pleasure. Thank you, Angela. This has been so much fun. Thank you for listening to my episode with Katie Kitamura. Her book, Intimacies, is available now and you can buy it via a link on our website, lituppodcast.com. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rodofsky. Please make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Until next time, bye everyone. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.